0: if you would like to ruin this church in one generation, I have some suggestions for you. If you are okay to see the doors of this church close, if you don't mind that people leave, if you don't care to see the next generation come to Christ, consider the following. Number one, Don't ask for wise counsel. Don't turn to the older brothers and sisters in Christ and ignore the leaders that God has put over you. Live by yourself and for yourself in your own little corner. Go with what you want and whatever feels good. Number two, look at the older generation of believers as irrelevant. Look at those a few decades older than you as ignorant or unimportant Be obnoxiously dismissive of the practices of your spiritual fathers and mothers. Number three. Assume the younger generation is merely irresponsible, childish, and completely arrogant. And so avoid them. Number four. Stop reaching the young men. Don't minister to the young boys, the high school guys, the single men, the young fathers. If the men are lazy or absent, take it lightly. Though they are future husbands and leaders, future shepherds of the home, honestly, young guys are hard to deal with, so just avoid them altogether. Number five, fellowship with only those of the same age and ignore the rest. Separate the church into groups, divide them by age, allow very little interaction between the generations. If you don't have young children, avoid kids' ministry. If you are not married, ignore the family functions of the church. Stop thinking about the future. Assume discipleship naturally happens. Consider prayer and fasting unproductive. Create programs that will keep you busy and will cause the teaching of the Word to be secondary. And after all this, if the church is still around in the coming years, repeat steps one to five. Beloved, I hope you see the danger of what I'm saying. Do not take any of this seriously. Let us be alert and sober-minded. Let us engage in fervent prayer and regular fasting, seeking the face of God. Let us put... Aside our ideas and agendas, let us come before God on our knees with hands lifted high, waiting upon him. Let us pray for years and generations to come. Let us not assume or ignore or walk overly confident or throw out our hands up in defeat. For there is hope for the coming generation. For our children and their children, there is hope. Hope for the new converts and the spiritual children that are to come after them. The hope for the next generation is sound theology. The teaching and transfer of right biblical doctrine is what will keep our children and our children's children from the hardness of heart of those who forget God and instead to keep them walking with hope each day. Hope, generation, generation. Sound theology. We see three things. But why, oh why, should we bother with this? Maybe you are thinking there are a dozen other things we should be busying ourselves with. Or concerning ourselves for the coming generations. Maybe you are thinking that in light of the change and transition in church these few weeks, maybe a very different or very strategic or very practical sermon would have been better to address All this, I want to first point your attention to the past. To see the hearts of those who have gone before us. To see the hearts of the people of the Old Testament. The basis for the urgency of this matter is the hardness of heart of the people who have gone before us. And I want us to consider the present. To consider the doctrine of God for today. For the community of believers to come together to share the critical role of discipleship. The content of which is the doctrine of God. And then I would like to point your attention ahead to the coming generations. And that is where we will end up this morning. Thinking and praying for our physical and spiritual children. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Will we really study all 72 verses? That's for me to know and you to find out. Psalm 78, starting with verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Here he is doing exactly what. What he will be instructing the readers to be doing. He is hearing wisdom from those who have gone before him. And he is passing this on. So that the readers would pass this on to the generations to follow. Verse 4. We will not hide them from their children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The remainder of the psalm is a 500-year history. Of Israel, From Moses, verses 9 to 39, to David, verses 40 to 72. This psalm moves from grace to sin to judgment and back to grace. In verses 8 to 12, we already see the unchanging hearts of the people. There is a reference here to what might have been the battle from 1 Samuel 4, where the people of God were facing the Philistines. Because of the repetitive sin of the house of Eli... God promised judgment, and the people took the Ark of the Covenant with them to battle, hoping it will bring good fortune. Instead, 30,000 soldiers were killed, along with the two sons of Eli, and the Ark of His Might, as it says, was taken. The Ephraimites were meant to lead the people, but instead they broke the covenant, and so the people became stubborn and rebellious and spiritually forgetful, not steadfast in walking according to God's ways. It says in Deuteronomy 9 that from the day they came out of Egypt until the day that they came to the new land, they were forgetting God. So the entire journey from Egypt to Canaan is one ongoing rebellion against God. Going back to Psalm 7, 8, 13, just 16, we see that God judged the enemy with plagues and Led the people through the Red Sea and with a pillar of fire and cloud. And how did the people respond to such grace? Verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Yes, he brought water from a rock, but what about manna and meat? What an arrogant accusation against the loving heart of God. He just brought them out of Egypt, and they are still wondering if he is good and sufficient enough to care for them in the wilderness. Verses 21-22, God hears them. For God surely hears the complaints of the people, and he responds with anger. After all this, the exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, the provisions that followed, they did not trust. So God blessed them. With meat from heaven, but while the food was still in their mouth, his anger burned against them. In 30 to 34, we see that. But did they repent? Did they learn from their wrongdoing? Did they take God seriously? No. Look at 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. And then in verse 37, which highlights the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. It says, their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to the covenant. 38 and 39 are rich with love and grace. But listen to their sad response in verse 40. How often. Listen, God was keeping an account. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again. They provoked the Holy One of Israel. They forgot. And such forgetfulness is not a lack of mental effort. It is a spiritual sickness, a deliberate casting aside of the presence, nature, works, and commands of God. What do they forget? In 42 to 51, it goes back to Egypt and back to the Exodus and back to the plagues. They forgot, they ignored their very salvation. They were belittling the mercy of God. And so in 56 to 58, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. The entire psalm highlights and stresses the constant disbelief of the people in the face of unimaginable grace. We see this again and again. We see grace in 11 to 16 followed by sin in 17 to 20. Yet they sinned still more. The grace of 38 to 39 is followed by sin in 40 and 42. The grace of 43 to 55 is followed by sin in 56 to 59. God was really Really good to them. And yet they were unmoved in their ways, seeking the fleeting delight of sin rather than the fullness of joy that comes from communion with God. Neither grace nor judgment broke their hardened hearts. But why consider this history lesson? Because of verse 8. So that they and so that we would not be like those fathers. That stubborn and rebellious generation. Whose hearts were not steadfast nor faithful to God. So that we would see and avoid. We would hear and learn. We would be aware and warned by. The problem is the heart. And such a heart against God is not changed over the years. We see such forgetful and stubborn hearts. Here today in this generation. In those around us. And without Christ. The coming generation will have the same heart that is far from steadfast in the ways of the Lord. Beloved, do you see the depth of the problem? Do you tremble at the seriousness of all this? Do you fear for those coming after us? From what I found out, and there might be more, there are three women here who are pregnant. There are about 36 children in Sunday school. You see them downstairs or in the building next door. and But the weight of this ministry cannot simply be on the shoulders of the 40, 42 volunteers, though that is an incredible number. The, the weight of this issue is on the church. These are our kids. This is our future. This is where the church is headed. Are we fasting and praying for these little hearts? Our looking to the past brings our attention to the present. The survey of this psalm makes us sober-minded of the gravity of the situation. This is where sound theology comes in. Because if this and the coming generations are to avoid the sins of the fathers and walk faithfully before God, what is needed is sound theology. What is this sound theology? Look at verse 4. We're talking about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. We're talking about God's nature and personhood and attributes and works. If you note the mentions of God in this psalm, you will see his guidance, his patience, his grace, judgment, abundance of goodness, power over creation, his holiness and glory, his compassion and mercy. For example, look at verse 12. Look at the description of the crossing of the Red Sea. Let us see God's Glorious deed there 12 to 14 follow with me. In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud and at all the night with a fiery light. He divided the sea. Other translations say he split the sea or he broke the sea. Psalm 106 says He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. Then what? Psalm 77 says the waters were afraid. The deep trembled. Psalm 114 says the sea looked and fled. So the God who created also sustains and governs and rules over all things. He speaks and the sea opens up. This is God's doing. More than that, God's very presence is here at the crossing of the Red Sea. Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the greater waters, yet your footprints were unseen. If it seems that God is not actively working in your life right now, it does not mean that he is absent. You might not see it now, but surely his footprints are there leading you on. Three times in the surrounding passages, it says that God led them through the sea like a shepherd caring for the sheep. Psalm 136 emphasizes this is his great steadfast love. Psalm 107 says he did this for his name's sake. Do you see how glorious the deed of the Lord really is? Is your mouth filled with laughter? as you consider the abounding goodness of God upon the people. I recently read the following quote. He said, quote, God doesn't give out grace and peace using tweezers. He uses a calculator that doesn't have a plus button, but just to multiply one. End quote. So, so not addition, but a multiplication of goodness in God's calculator of grace. Look at verse 15 and 16. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. This is nothing like the small and calm water of the water dispenser on the front of your fridge. This is a mighty river of water erupting from a rock to quench the thirst of a countless number of people. Not an addition button, but a multiplication on God's Grace calculator, are you lost in admiration as you consider the works of God? The goodness and grace of God in this psalm does not make sense. After all this, after all the sin, in verse 17 it says, yet they, but in 23 it says, yet he. God's grace was true to his unchanging character, not cast aside by the unworthiness of the people. While the people were deliberate in their wrongdoing, God was deliberate in keeping the promise he made to the forefathers. He spoke of these things to Abraham in Genesis 15 and made a promise of grace which nothing could hinder. And we see this again in verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for the iniquity and did not destroy them. Even after the unfaithfulness of the people towards the covenant. And in the end, we read that he graciously chose Judah. He called David, a young shepherd boy, to be the shepherd king who would foreshadow the coming good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And here today, we are that sheep, and he is our great shepherd we shall not want. Beloved, the glorious deeds of the Lord are to be the theme of our teaching and discipleship. Sound theology is what is needed, not traditionalism, not religious rituals, not behavior modification, not legalism, not pressure, nor shaming to do this or that. What is needed is the teaching, the teaching of God, the teaching of God that is passed from one generation to the next. Verse 4, so that they should, this should not be hidden from their children, but tell of them to the coming generations. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children. How many generations are mentioned here? One author said children are bearers of the gospel to generations yet unborn. So as you pray and as you do ministry to the generation coming after you, be mindful of two or three generations that will come after them. Will you view Redeemer in this way? Not seeing the older generation as irrelevant or unimportant, but precious and valuable. I taught the adult Sunday school class last month, and in that hour I was with six to eight believers, and that made me want to spend a few hours with them, asking questions and listening to their story faith that the people here need each other no matter what age or generation bringing the generations together not just on a rare event at the church this is not something common or natural of course not because this is something supernatural the community of believers is a phenomenon by the powerful grace of the holy spirit through the gospel This church, all of this is the doing of the Holy Spirit. And if you do life with generations together, there will be tension. But we have all the reasons to turn the lemon of generational tension into the lemonade of generational harmony. Because this is the family of God. This is the body of Christ. This is where the Spirit is dwelling. This is where we are one. But let's pause for a moment. What if you just can't carry this responsibility and fulfill this calling today? We just read that we are called to be a community that speaks the glorious works of the Lord to the coming generations and the ones to follow. This is a high calling. But what about those exhausted parents who barely keep their heads above water? What about the father sinking in depression for reasons that are honestly unclear to him? What about the ministry leader wrestling with fear and anxiety for years? What about the kids' ministry volunteer who is still trying to unravel their own personal questions and doubts about the Christian faith? If you find the calling of Psalm 78 too much for you today, I want to point your heart to the comfort of Psalm 77 for just a moment. Because it might very well be that Psalm 77 is what will enable you to do Psalm 78 in your life. In Psalm 77, the writer is crying out to God, seeking God in the day of trouble. It seems he is facing anxiety the most at night and so is totally unable to sleep in peace. He laments in verses 7 to 9. He's overwhelmed. Will God reject forever? Has his steadfast love expired? Has he given up on grace and compassion? Wait. 77, 11 says, I I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our great God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Then the history lesson is what we read of Exodus and the Red Sea. And this reminds him that God is in fact... Definitely present and lovingly guiding the people. Remembering the past was offering him strength for the present. Beloved, if you are in such troubling experiences, if you have insomnia and anxiety in the middle of the night, if you are genuinely lamenting and bringing your questions before the Lord, remind yourselves of these things. Before we can disciple the new and younger believers in the faith, for them to know and hope and walk, we ourselves need to continually be discipled and be reminded so that we first would know and hope and walk. So that our ministry is not in place of our discipleship, but an overflow. So that we guard and grow our walk with God before we do ministry. So that our receiving is more than our giving. So that our hearts remain healthy and the ministry can be fruitful. If you are in that moment today, consider turning to a fellow believer just a little ahead of you in the journey. Find a strong and steadfast saint. Maybe the generation ahead of you, watch them, ask them, listen to them, learn from them. Maybe... Before today's message can call you to ministry, it needs to call you to a restoration. Our study of Psalm 78 has pointed our attention to the past. To be warned by and thus avoid the hardness of heart. Then we have looked at the present to see the urgency and the importance of knowing and discipling. But this passage doesn't leave us there. This does not and cannot end with us. Our hearts are to be set on the coming generation. Redeemer 2.0, as we heard it was referred a few weeks ago, ought to already be thinking about and praying for Redeemer 3.0. Verses 4 to 6 calls us to disciple the generations, and verse 7 tells us why. So that they should set their hope. Another translation says, they put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The dozen examples of unbelief and unfaithfulness from 8 to 72 compel us to take sound theology far more seriously with our eyes on the days to come, with our hearts fervent in prayer for the coming spiritual and physical generation. Let us not pull away from this calling. Let us not avoid the messiness of ministry. Let us not hide and foolishly compartmentalize our lives. Let us hold hands. Let us fast and pray. Let us do discipleship as a community so that those coming after us will know and hope and walk in the ways of God. Our discipleship will not guarantee their fruit. There's nothing automatic here. This is not a quick formula, that as long as you disciple, there's fruit. We disciple, but the results are not our doing. It is not in our hands. We pray and proclaim, but the rest is God's doing. We just don't know, but we do know what will clearly happen if we cast aside the call to disciple. If we ignore this, we know what's going to happen. Consider the children around you. Think beyond to the generation that will follow them. They cannot be too young for the hearing of the good works of God. Charles Spurgeon had a strong, hopeful word for children's ministry. He said the following, I will say broadly that I have more confidence in the spiritual life of children than I have received in this church, than I have in the spiritual condition of the adults thus received. I will even go further than that and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the child convert than in the man convert. So listen, he he is saying, let us not take kids' ministry lightly. If they can hear you, speak to them of the good works of God. They can be genuine followers of Christ from that age. This is why children's ministry is so important. I hear that there was children's ministry training after church today. I did not know that. I just found out two days ago, but the sermon was almost done already. There's a thin book called Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle, a pastor from about 150 years ago. This is what he says for young men. For another thing, the devil uses special diligence to destroy the souls of young men, and they seem not to know it. Satan knows well that you will make up the next generation, and therefore he employs every art betimes or early to make you his own. I would not have you ignorant of his devices. You are those on whom he plays off all his choices, temptations. He spreads his net with the most watchful carefulness to entangle your hearts. He bathes his traps with the sweetest morsels to get you into his power. He displays his wares before your eyes with utmost ingenuity in order to make you buy his sugared poisons and eat his accursed dainties. You are the grand object of his attack. This, This is why we have to disciple the children, the young men. The teens, the generation to come. This is why I served in youth ministry for over 15 years. This is why for years I prayed and encouraged parents and the rest of the church members of all ages to consider and commit to discipling the young people in church. I read the following testimony of a teen who said that the church members who taught her the most were not the Sunday school teachers or the youth leaders, but those people 10 feet out of the spotlight who served by modeling godliness and grace. What the young people need are ongoing relationships with those of the generation before them, living for Christ in front of them. This is not the calling of the youth pastor, but the church. You see, this is not a lesson on parenting, but on discipleship. This message is not simply for parents, but for every believer here. We don't know if and how their faith will remain in college and adulthood, but their engagement in the church, both in their receiving as well as their giving helps them stay grounded in the faith. So maybe the 16-year-old needs to be mentored by the 66-year-old and shepherd the 6-year-old all at the same time for their own good. We must be intentional. We don't have an option. Such discipleship doesn't happen accidentally or surprisingly falling into place. We cannot assume that the kids of church leaders are doing fine, that those in church all their life are fine. We must live the Christian life in front of them and alongside them, inviting them to follow and imitate us as we imitate Christ. We cannot act like helicopter parents hovering over the youth, nor like the religious elite quick to find fault, coming to fix. Nor should we assume that the church's health and future is hopeless. We believe in the priesthood of believers. We each have a role to play. We each are members of the body. We are given grace gifts to be stewarded with wisdom for the good of others. Dads and moms, you are the primary spiritual caretaker of your children. Not the youth leader or the children's ministry volunteer. They do have a role. And that is to come alongside and support the ongoing ministry you are doing. You who love them, know them, and are with them the most. You are called to shepherd their hearts you are called to regularly open the word again and again and explain the truths and share the gospel with them and invite their questions and allow them to be honest about their doubts and struggles and be vulnerable about your own issues as well. And so before you ask them what they learn in Sunday school, share with them what you learned from the morning sermon. They are watching you. They are listening to you. They are depending on you. But in every minute of parenting remember that the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob is with you the God who heard the cries of the people who redeemed his people from Egypt who led them through the Red Sea who was with them in the wilderness who provided manna for 40 years who cleared the way for them to inherit a land flowing with milk and honey the covenant making God the covenant keeping God is with you do not fear he will not let you be shaken if you or an older couple who assume the stressful seasons of life were over, but in this moment are facing one of the hardest seasons yet. As you, as seasons believers, are relearning what it means to pray unceasingly and are trying to unravel the struggle with unanswered prayers, be mindful of those younger than you who are facing their own struggle with prayer these days as well. Be honest and open with them. Be vulnerable. Don't pull away or pretend that everything is fine Your weakness is not a hindrance for discipleship, but this might be just a new and unexpected but fruitful time of helping another couple grow in their faith, even when they are struggling with unanswered prayer. If you have been actively involved in this church community during the last 10 years, but now are noticing a few young people who have been visiting the last few weeks, prayerfully consider reaching out to them. Maybe they just moved here from out of town. They are really struggling with loneliness. Maybe the changes in their lives are sparking a new anxieties and fears. Maybe what they need to hear from you is your story and the works of God in your life. Invite them. Spend time with them and get to know them. And slowly share with them the glorious works of the Lord in your life, in your family, and in this church. Avoid hiding. Avoid doing only what is comfortable. Be humble and ready to follow the prompting of the Spirit to reach out to those who are younger and those who are new so that they would know and hope in the Lord themselves. As a pastor, I have seen this. And then I have the joy of seeing young people mature and be leaders who disciple the children of the older believers who ministered to them in the first place. Beloved, the hardness of heart is too dangerous. The attributes and acts of God are abundantly good. The generations to come are precious and dearly loved. Our calling today is discipleship. We look in, we look up, we look ahead with eternity stamped on our eyes.